Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Ayça Çubukçu. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and the co-director of LSE Human Rights at LSE. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the school and a great honor indeed to introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Robin Kelly. Let me admit that um, some introductions are more difficult than others, especially when the person introduced has been a comradely source of inspiration and solidarity for some 15 years. Would it suffice to say that Professor Kelly is one of the most prominent and radical historians of our times? Shall I remark instead? <laughs> Shall I remark instead that he has chronicled, critiqued, and created revolutionary beats, some sung, some unsung, in and of history? Perhaps you, you've heard before how graciously he's done this already. I'm sure you'll hear it tonight. Lest my admiration for his work, decidedly political and artistic, gets in the way of this introduction, allow me to refer to his biographical page at UCLA. Professor Robin Kelly is Distinguished Professor of History and Gary B. Nash Endowed Chair in United States History at the University of California, Los Angeles. His research has explored the history of social movements in the United States, the African diaspora and Africa, black intellectuals, music, visual culture, contemporary urban studies, historiography and historical theory, poverty studies and ethnography, colonialism and imperialism, organized labor, constructions of race, surrealism, Marxism and nationalism among other subjects. His essays have appeared in a wide variety of professional journals as well as general publications, including the Journal of American History, American Historical Review, Black Music Research Journal, African Studies Review, New York Times, uh, New York Times Magazine, The Crisis, The Nation, and others. Professor Kelly is a prolific writer by any measure. His first two books, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great De Depression and Race Rebels, Culture, Politics and the Black Working Class explore a common set of questions. Who makes up the black working class? How do they fight against oppressions of race, gender and class? And what do they fight for? Your Mama's Dysfunctional Fighting the Culture Wars in Urban America is a work of urban studies, public policy, social commentary, and late 20th century history. It examines various sources of the contemporary urban crisis and the means by which residents have tried to survive, achieve some kind of upward mobility, create art, and organize in order to fight back. Freedom Dreams, the black radical imagination, might be described as a history of the collective imagination of black radical social movements during the 20th century, focusing primarily on what people in particular movements dreamed of, what they thought they were fighting for, what they articulated in particular as the new world or new land. His fifth book, I've lost count, I tried to bring it all together. He's also the editor of so many books. This introduction could have taken 10 minutes at least. I'll try to keep it to five. His, uh, 
His book, Telonius Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original, is the first full-length complete biography of one of the most important composers and pianists of 20th century American music and one of the most enigmatic figures of his time. And Professor Kelly's most recent book, Africa Speaks, America Answers, Modern Jazz in Revolutionary Times, explores the work, conversations, collaborations, and tensions among both African and African-American musicians during the era of decolonization. It explains how modern Africa figured in reshaping jazz during the 1950s and early 1960s, how modern jazz figured in the formation of a modern African identity, and how various musical convergences and crossings shaped the political and cultural landscape on both con uh, continents. Okay. <laughs> Finally, allow me to note that Professor Kelly's much-anticipated lecture tonight, International Blues, Revolutionary Pessimism, and the Politics of Solidarity, is the sixth annual lecture of the Internationalism, Cosmopolitanism, and the Politics of Solidarity research group that I convene at LAC, along with Dr. Anna Bernard of King's College London, Dr. Vidya Kumar of University of Leicester, and Dr. Vasuki Nesia of New York University. Now, without further ado, okay. I've been waiting for months for this moment. Please join us in welcoming to LSE Professor Robin Kelly, the poetic. Hey, can you hear me? Hey, good. Um, I've been waiting a long time too for this moment, and um, <laughs> and I have to say, so I was on the plane. I just I was on the red eye. Got here um, this morning. Uh, working all night on this talk, um, I, when 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 I had had uh, had you know invited me, I thought a lot about the um, the theme of the working group and tried to address some of the um, the the main points of the theme, and I came up with this crazy idea. So um, I didn't really try to operationalize it until you know maybe late last night at LAX. <laughs> um, so we'll see how this works out. Um, also, I have a, a, some music I was going to play for you, but what I'm going to do is we're going to talk, I'm going to talk, um, and then I'll, maybe during Q&A I might play it for you, um, because I'm assuming that some of you know the song, The Internationale, some of you probably never heard of it. <laughs> and, and so there was a particular version of it that I wanted to play. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, for this invitation. Uh, thank you, Maddie, for um, dealing with my uh, disorganization. Um, so, in some ways, the song, The International, uh, was a song meant to be sung in every language. And the version I was going to play for you actually is in Afrikaans. And Afrikaans is a, a, a language that, when I was coming up, involved in the anti-apartheid movement, um, it was a language, it's considered the language of the oppressor. Right, the language that people in Soweto rose up, students, so they wouldn't have to learn Afrikaans, uh, which was imposed on them. But to transform, to translate that song into Afrikaans, and to hear the version that I play, that I was going to play for you, which is really kind of a bluesy, hip version, it really does, uh, in some ways, remind you of what the song was supposed to be, supposed to do in terms of an expression of internationalism. Um, 
Of course, some of you may know it. The song comes out of the Paris Commune in 1971, a song of international solidarity and revolution that transcends nations. Internationalism is not about sort of just recognizing nations. It's also about the transcendence of nations. Um, and in the midst of the crisis of late 19th century Europe, uh, it promised a better world in birth. And by the way, I just realized that I'm in England, where the, the lyrics in, the, in England are different from the United States, which, of course, different from China, but that's very different. Um, so to begin here, of course, um, when we talk about the international and we talk about the question of solidarity, as my um, uh, title uh, uh, lays out, we rarely talk about um, solidarity for what? In other words, we, we talk about like, what's the politics of solidarity? How do we build solidarity? But solidarity for what? That, in some ways, that question is almost always implied. Uh, we take the question for granted because uh, usually in most situations, especially among people who share sim somewhat similar politics, um, solidarity means reacting to demands, reacting to crisis. Of, uh, of aggrieved communities, defending those aggrieved communities under siege. Um, it's about building strength and unity, usually with the long-term goal of birthing a better world, which is to say a world without oppression, a world without exploitation, uh, a world without capitalism. But there are no universal uh, agreement as to what, um, what it means, um, what this sort of new world means, and more on this later. So the song, The International, at one point was thought to be the expression of the final universal objective of solidarity. Um, and by the way, just be honest. How many people actually know the lyrics? Raise your hand. Okay, there's maybe about 11%. Okay, 12% maybe, not even that. Um, so I had a, you know, I, I can't get my sides together, but the lyrics that we're more familiar with are, you know, Araji, Prisoners of, of Starvation, Araji, Wretched of the Earth, which, you know, Dame de la Terre, which, of course, Fanon draws on, For Justice, Thunders, Condemnation, uh, A Better World's in Birth, No More Traditions Chains Shall Bind Us, Arise, Ye Slaves, No More Enthrall, The Earth Shall Rise on New Foundations, We Shall Be Not, We Shall Be All. Um, and then that final chorus, like, Tis the final, comp you know, I was going to play on the piano if I had one. Um, let each stand in this place, the international working class, or in the British version, the international union, however, shall be the human race. So the question I want to pose after sort of presenting the international is what if the international was a blues? That's the question for this evening. Um, and the inspiration for that question comes from a conversation I had with the late Amiri Baraka, who I got to know. He once made a, a passing remark about the blues versus the international. Uh, in a conversation we had many years ago, and recently while reading his last collection of essays called Digging, which is essays on sort of uh, what he calls Afro-American classical music, I encountered this line in an essay of his called The Blues Aesthetic and the Black Aesthetic. And the line is, the blues is first come from black, red, the last going out to re-come, the cycle, the circle, the red, what reading, did re-adding, reproducing revolution, red, old going out into black and coming back through mood, through blue mood indigo. Okay, you have to sort of seize those words. So now, of course, it's very poetic as part of this essay that he, he uh, writes, um, but it has a lot to say about time, 
about transformation, uh, about the blues, not just as an art form, but as a dialectic. Um, a people in motion confronting con catastrophe, deepening radical social consciousness, making revolution with all of its contradictions laid bare, producing a new synthesis through the blues. This is what Barack is getting at, the cycle, the circle. So with Barack in mind, I want to ask this question. So what if the international expressed not the triumphalism of an imagined proletariat marching arm in arm to overthrow the bourgeoisie and emancipate the productive forces and themselves, but rather took the form of the blues. And when I say blues, I don't just mean like bluesy, a bluesy version with dominant seventh chords or, you know, or blue scales, the flat third, the flat fifth. I'm, I'm not talking about like repeated lines uh, or turnarounds. I'm also talking about kind of the open-endedness of its structure and its imperative to improvise, um, which would allow for as many verses or statements as needed. So imagine singing the internationality, just keep adding more verses and adding more verses and adding more verses and, once, and changing those verses over time. Um, what if the international had actually embodied the blues in its humor, in its raw honesty, its fearless embrace of pleasure, pain, sex, and everybody, men, women, toilers of all kinds, not just the proletariat, while at the same time decentering toil itself? In other words, what if the international reflected or expressed what Clyde Woods uh, and others called a blues epistemology, which is not a lament, but a clear-eyed way of knowing and revealing the world that recognizes the tragedy and humor in everyday life, as well as the capacity of people to survive, to think, to resist in the face of adversity. So Clyde Woods describes the blues as a way of theorizing the realities of and escape from life in enclosure. Uh, a, a black working class ethic of survival, subsistence, resistance, and affirmation. Um, Toni Morrison also talked about a blue sensibility, which we could talk about. Um, and for her, <laughs> she says, in a conversation with, with Cornel West about 15 years ago, she said of the blues, she goes, there's a sense of agency, even when someone has broken your heart. The process of having the freedom to have made that choice is what surfaces in the blues. Now, there are some stanzas of the international which I'm willing to bet you that some of you don't know. I mean, I'm sure that there's 3% who do know. Um, but some of these stanzas, you know, really do reflect a kind of blue sensibility, um, calling out the truth of the system. Um, for example, the law oppresses us and tricks us. The wage slave system drains our blood. The rich are free from obligation. The laws the poor delude. Too long we've languished in subjection. Or these lyrics. <coughs> Behold them seated in their glory, the king of mine in rail and soil. What have you read in all their story, but how they plundered toil? Fruits of the workers' toil are buried in strongholds of the idle few. In working for the restitution, the men will only claim their due. Now, <coughs> to ask this question, we've got to begin by dispelling the myth about what the blues are. Um, the blues um, is a modern music, and I really want to emphasize this. Um, it's a modern artistic form in prison under the highly racialized category of folk music. It's not really folk music. Amir Baraka, Angela Davis, uh, and others <coughs> insisted that the blues was a modern music invented 
in that post-slavery moment, in that post-Reconstruction era, uh, it reflected newly won freedoms even in a period where the restoration of Confederate rule forced most black people, um, as Du Bois puts it, back towards slavery. Angela Davis emphasized the relative freedom of mobility and sexuality. Um, Also, the blues was forged in the centers of American capitalism. Um, The Mississippi Delta, (coughs) after Reconstruction, so much of global capitalism was sort of centered there. You have cotton moving out, sugar moving out, other goods moving into the Mississippi, into New Orleans. Um, This is why the blues often references, you know, uh, like the sound of the whistle, the industrial whistle. It also references migration. Um, it references um, trains, uh, where trains are the modern modes of transportation, not the slave ship, right? And so think about, you know, nowadays in our sort of middle passage epistemology, the slave ship keeps coming back as, a, as the icon of, of anti-blackness. But the trains, they, I mean, as much as they may be messed up, the trains were like icons of freedom of mobility, of motion, of movement. Um, (coughs) Also, the first commercial blues artists were black women, and their songs expressed the possibilities and anxieties of modern urban life. Um, I mean, this was, it spoke to modernity, and the, the music created a poetics of sexual freedom and power, a poetics that articulates desire, as well as pain, loss, alienation, and fantasy. So the blues in the U.S. was created literally at the time of the Paris Commune. I mean, these emerged together in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, the period that a lot of historians called the nadir, the low period. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of myths about the late 19th century, particularly for African-American history. I mean, one of the big myths is that, you know, Booker T. Washington told black people, look, cast down your buckets where you are. You know, you got to accept segregation and just accommodate. Well, that's not what happened. What happened was some of the most intense periods of class struggle led by black people in the South, in Louisiana, in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Georgia. Um, This was the center of class conflict in organizations like United Mine Workers, the Greenback Labor Party, the Knights of Labor, um, the populists. You know, and eventually part of what undercut that immense period of multiracial biracial struggle in the South was um, the ability of white supremacy to buy off the white working class, you know, leaving black leaders of these movements uh, alone. (coughs) Now, of course, when we get outside the United States, you think about the whole world, you know, dealing with all kinds of insurgencies in the 1870s, 1880s. You've got peasant rebellions in Japan. A lot of those uh, uh, peasants who are leaving Japan during that period of peasant rebellion end up on the West Coast, end up on plantations in Hawaii. Uh, You've got, of course, the Paris Commune. You've got the um, rise of the Second International throughout Europe. And you've got the beginnings of the Russian Revolution, which I'll say something about later. Um, But, you know, so the point is that there's a lot going on. Now, Time. Blues marks in time. To reimagine the international as a blues is also to rethink our conception of time itself. Um, Away from linear time and away from teleology. Something about the international and its lyrics that's teleological. It's like, it's um, not just teleological, but as we'll see, it's eschatological in some ways. It is about the achievement of end times, you know, when the working class shall be all, right? 
So to take heed of Baraka, he writes that the blues, quote, is deeper and older than itself as the self, as this self. And I'm not talking about the history of origins of blues, but rather how the blues as an expression of black life and a philosophy conceives of time. So blues stretches time. It's flexible, it's improvisatory, it's simultaneously in the moment, it's simultaneously in the past, and it's in the future. And the timeless space of imagination is where the blues uh, situated. In the blues, Baraka reminds us, quote, the past is also the future. What is nigh is coming. Eve before am. Eve before am. The present was here before it was the past and after it was the future. Um, so this t- brings me to Cedric Robinson's uh, work, and I want to say something about it. So Cedric Robinson wrote his first book was called The Terms of Order. And in that book, he reviews three concepts of time, linear time, cyclical time, and eschatological time. And that is um, where the latter combines linear and cyclical time, uh, but structured around the the idea of end times. That is, end times, uh, you know, the final achievement or the final prophecy, the apocalyptic. End times does away with time itself while also coming in cycles. Um, in his book, An Anthropology of Marxism, which I want to say a few words about because, one, it's available. It's been reissued. Beautiful, amazing introduction by Avery Gordon. Um, it, was, it came out in 2001. Uh, nobody read it except for five people. It's one of the most important books ever written, uh, like in the last two centuries. Uh, and I'm telling you, you've got to read that. I have some things to say about it. So this is by advertisement. Pluto Press put out a British edition. You can get the U.S. edition from University of North Carolina Press. But let me talk about this book because it's very, very important for what I'm trying to argue. Um, and although Cedric and I never um, uh, had a conversation about the international as blues, I have, to, I have to really you know, acknowledge that studying under him uh, is, is, is exactly why I could even think in these terms, because he kind of forced me to think in these terms without actually saying so. Um, in any case, so Cedric makes a point. It's a, it's a critique of Marxism, but it's sort of more than that. But, but Robinson makes a point in this book that Marx, Engels, and what becomes Marxism uh, clings, cling to notions of es- eschatological time and to stadial conceptions of history carried over from the Enlightenment, but rooted in earlier Christian notions of prophecy in the, the apocalypse. So anyone who's, who's read the Communist Manifesto, uh, and I'm sure everyone's read it because that's like high school reading, um, even in the United States, <laughs> believe it or not, as an example of what not to do, right? <laughs> but the, the Manifesto, will, you know, you'll recognize the apocalyptic messianism in its assertion that social society will usher in the class of society, followed by the proclamation that the, history of hum- the human history is the history of class struggle. So class of society means the end of history. But more importantly, an anthropology of Marxism takes Marx's historical materialism, materialism to task for ignoring the actual history of socialism to support a kind of stadial theory of history that positions capitalism prior to socialism. So Cedric writes, and I just want to read this, it is the stadial view of history that ties the possibility of socialism solely to the historical appearance and agency of the industrial proletariat, 
that obliterates the actual history of socialism in all historical experience of all other classes, indeed most of the world. The severe periodization of a truly realizable socialism to what was termed the era of capitalism meant prioritizing an industrial proletariat which would perform historically as it was imagined the bourgeoisie had done earlier. But since industrial wage labor was in actuality only one segment of the working classes, all other classes of labor, serfs, peasants, slaves, clericals, domestic workers, etc., uh, either disappeared in Marxian theory or were consigned to political, ideological, and economic subordination to the proletariat or the bourgeoisie. Now, Cedric here is not simply arguing that Marx and Engels were wrong and therefore we should abandon Marxism. Um, and in fact, at the end of the text, he, he, he makes a defense of Marx as being one of the really important thinkers in terms of socialism, but he has a critique of the way in which he constructed this history, this genealogy. Um, but what he's arguing is that ignoring pre-capitalist or non-proletarian socialist traditions and by elevating the industrial proletariat to the universal subject destined to sort of usher in socialism, our comprehension of socialism is severely narrowed. Uh, and he tells his history. It's, it's a small book full of rich details. He talks about the you know, the radical medieval philosophies, the primitive Christianity, the anarchist traditions, all kinds of traditions of socialism, some of them actually coming from the bourgeoisie itself, right, that existed, um, particularly in medieval times. And he's just talking about the West. And he says that all these alternative origins um, or expressions of socialist ethos are dismissed as utopian and therefore not taken seriously. And anointing the industrial proletariat as the revolutionary class simply for its structural relationship to capital makes it hard to assess why workers, organized workers, uh, movements fail, or why most socialist insurgencies of the 20th century were not industrial, led by industrial workers. He makes the case that earlier socialist thinkers out of earlier religious traditions showed deep commitments to the emancipation of women, for example. Um, in fact, Cedric took Marx and Engels to task for initially acknowledging uh, women as, quote, the archetype of the dispossessed subject, and you could see this in Engels' um, writing, but also uh, very early on uh, in the early writings in the 1840s, um, but ultimately unable to see women as a revolutionary force. And he writes, Cedric, there was a flaw in Marx's theory of the basic motive forces of history, for unlike the self-empowering classes which would eventually appear in history, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, women were incapable of liberating themselves, according to, to the Marxist frame. Um, as a class, the liberation of women was dependent upon their absorption into the proletariat. Um, furthermore, Cedric points out how the institutions and organs representing workers often practice national, racial, and gender exclusions, often backing what the national interests of colonial imperialist regimes what were the national interests. Now, here, <coughs> uh, revisiting the Russian Revolution is instructive. And I have to say, I've been thinking a lot about the Russian Revolution because I just edited this book that came out, um, I guess, last year, uh, Walter Rodney's Lectures on the Russian Revolution. And I could tell you the whole genealogy behind that book um, is something that I began back in the 80s. Yes, I'm that old. Um, and I was a grad student at the time and came back to it. Um, 
I have my criticisms of Rodney. We could talk about that. But I want to talk a little bit about the Russian Revolution because when we think of the revolution, especially given the fact that we just experienced 2017, there was, there was continues to be a kind of obsession with October. That the, we call it the October Revolution. Um, not necessarily, you know, with, say, February 1917, uh, which really began what one could argue is the third wave of the Russian Revolution, and that is the uprisings of thousands of female textile workers and housewives who took to the streets of Petrograd to protest the bread shortage and mark International Women's Day. Um, Instead, we see the picture of Lenin and the, the Soviets and people you know, standing here all in, in triumph as if seizing state power was the revolution. Or, to further underscore Cedric Robinson's point of the long, diverse origins of socialism, the revolution really begins in the late 19th century as the Tsar's empire uh, experienced economic crisis, military defeat, and the price of imperialist expansion. Um, the revolutionary challenge initially came from the peasantry, and this is Cedric's point, who were the only generation, I'm sorry, who were only a generation from abolition of, of serfdom, which of course coincides with the abolition of, of, of formal slavery in the United States. Um, the Narodniks promoted a vision of direct peasant socialism, um, which, whose genealogy doesn't come straight out of the first international. This is the point that Cedric's making. This is all these different genealogies of socialism. And we've got to pay attention to where they come from. So they, the Narodniks, which is intellectuals who moved to the countryside, promoted a vision of direct peasant socialism, specifically the idea of the mirror, the, the village communes, or the artel, the artisans' cooperatives, uh, would lay the foundations of a social society distinct from the industrialized West. Uh, and of course, now, to be fair, because I know I'm going to get this question, Yes, it's true. Marx was obsessed with peasants at the end of his life. Yes, he was writing all those Russian radicals, including anarchists. Yes, he was changing his mind about stuff. I'm down with that. Now, look, I know, I know about that. And, I, and, and look, he was, he was obsessed with North Africa. So this is not about, I'm not, I mean, for those of you who want to spend time defending Marx, we could do that. But this is not really about, you know, Marx is dead. <laughs> but, but, but Marx is brilliant. He's brilliant. And, 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 and Cedric says he's brilliant. But my point is that, in some ways, what Marx was discovering before he died on March 14, 1883, was these other traditions, the ones that he excluded because they didn't quite fit a stereo version of history. But, but let me get to the point. So in Russia, it didn't look like, and we know this, the, the, the kind of society that would... Um, would be right for socialism. <laughs> there was hardly a bourgeoisie in, in Russia at the time. And there was an industrial working class, but it really wasn't dominant. Uh, the revolution was long, it was complex, it was uneven, and it was improvisational. I mean, people talk bad about the Russian Revolution, but that was a mass movement. You talk about just in terms of just sheer numbers of people in the streets. There, I, I don't think this is true. I don't think, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's been a movement that massive in terms of just popular participation in the 20th century, you know? But we sometimes think of it in terms of this Lenin seizure of power, and that we evacuate all the stuff that's been happening over basically three decades of struggle. Now, to go back, um, it was improvisational. 
When mass general strikes in February brought much of the country to a standstill, most of the leading Bolsheviks and Mensheviks weren't even in the country. They were like in exile, Switzerland, whatever, hanging out. And they had to, they had to go catch up to the revolution. Um, workers returned to work and set about dismantling autocracy on the shop floor and demanding workers' control. They drove out foremen. They set up factory committees. They used strategies that were peasant strategies, basically forms of violence, you know, and shaming. And they formed Soviet uh, workers' councils. The Soviets saw themselves as organs of revolutionary democracy, a bloc comp comprising workers and soldiers, peasants, women, um, ethnic minorities, teachers, journalists, lawyers, and doctors. They weren't trying to figure out who's a real proletariat. It was, the Soviets were open for all. The basic principle was that they were directly elected by those they represented and directly accountable to them. That's direct democracy. Um, during the spring and summer, the moderate socialists, the Mensheviks, and socialist revolutionaries, which was the largest party, uh, were the leading force. Um, and in fact, uh, the socialist revolutionaries, the SRs, rejected the Marxist view of the peasantry as petty bourgeois, believing that the principles of collectivism inherent in the peasant commune made Russia peculiarly fitted for socialism. We could talk a little bit about that, because it wasn't just Marx who was changing his mind, but some people were really drilling down on the peasantry as petty bourgeois in, among the Italian communists and others. So, so much happened, I can't really get into, but some of the immediate victories after the Bolshevik seizure of power included greater workers' control, efforts to socialize housework and domestic labor, ending the criminalization of homosexuality, moving toward decolonization with an empire. All these would ultimately be reversed, both under Stalin and even before Stalin. Um, and, you know, and along with the dismantling of the Soviets. So the revolution proved the basic thesis of an anthropology of Marxism and illustrated its conclusions, that the desire for socialism persists in spite of Marxism's conceits because it is, quote, located in history and the persistence of the human spirit. And as the past and our present demonstrate, domination and oppression inspire that spirit in ways we may never fully understand that a socialist discourse is an irrepressible response to social injustice has been repeatedly confirmed. On that score, and this is Cedric talking, it has been immaterial whether it was generated by peasants or slaves, workers or intellectuals, or whether it took root in the metropole or the periphery. And yet, while masses of people were in motion, experimenting, and I want to really emphasize, experimenting with socialist freedom, Marxist intellectuals, even inside of Russia, were debating uh, over you know, how to contain and redirect these unruly energies in order to complete the bourgeois democratic revolution. I mean, they're trying to figure, well, well this is the bourgeois democratic, but we gotta, we gotta get that, take care of that first. And people are already in motion making a revolution, so they had to try to fix that. And part of that fixing um, is about suppressing some of those energies. Meanwhile, not only were some of the most radical gains reversed, impulses, by the way, that resemble more utopian than scientific expressions of socialism, but under Stalinism, the potentially decolonial policies of Soviet federalism gave way to Russian nationalism and the continuation of settler colonialism in Central Asia in the name of national unity. So Walter Rodney, one of the places where Walter actually uh, disagrees with Stalin, 
uh, we point out that by the 1930s and 40s, as the USSR stressed national unity and patriotism, uh, any evidence of Russian domination over non-Russian peoples was simply erased, along with the history of anti-colonial resistance. Uh, not that national minorities were erased. Uh, they were, in fact, ironically celebrated uh, in that period in an early expression of multicultural pluralism, you know, uh, which was in, in Russian terms uh, as bourgeois as multicultural pluralism is the United States <laughs> and the West. Which, you know, I, I'm obviously against multicultural, multiculturalism. But the antagonisms were practically eliminated and replaced with this other narrative. That is, that the problem was the native ruling classes in Central Asia and elsewhere uh, were the most immediate source of oppression, not the Russian settlers. As Rodney put it, quote, increasingly it was stressed that along with the Tsarist soldiers and officials came Russian workers, scientists, doctors, and teachers who played a great cultural and revolutionary role in the life of the peoples of Asia. By 1951, the Russian annexation became a positive good. That is to say, Russian settlers were turned into cultural workers and beneficiaries of the colonized. Now, to come back to this idea of blues time, as expansive, as elastic, I think that in some ways it um, resembles the blues resembles what anarchist theorist Yuri Gordon calls a generative temporality. Um, he distinguishes between generative uh, as opposed to prefigurative, which is a term that we often use, uh, which actually is, has biblical origins, biblical foundations. Um, that prefigurative kind of offers a reassurance that the path to liberation is preordained. So we don't have to worry about it. We know it's coming. Um, generative is different. A generative temp temporality, which is more like the blues, recognize, uh, recognizes that the future itself <coughs> is indeterminate and full of contingencies. By thinking of political practice as generative rather than prefigurative, the future is not only uncertain, but the road is constantly changing, along with new social relations, requiring new visions and exposing new contradictions and challenges. That is to say that improvisation is necessary. And I'm not talking about um, pragmatism. I'm talking about improvisation. Pragmatism has its own limits. Improvisation is inventing stuff that you never even imagined could happen. And that's part of what dealing with sort of generative temporality actually requires. Of course, in these bleak times, it's difficult for activists to imagine a revolutionary future, to dream utopian dreams. Today, in the face of rising xenophobia, authoritarianism, militarism, neoliberalism, the relative weakness of mass movements, uh, we can understand why we're in this age of immense and overwhelming pessimism. And these trends make solidarity more difficult, which is the, third, the last part I want to talk about, solidarity, if not inconceivable, especially like where I come from, um, in the states where people are dealing with anti-blackness, orientation of politics toward market relations, a deepening of individualism and nationalism, and the list goes on. Um, and by the way, just to be clear, um, so there's no false advertising, I'm actually not here to critique Afro-pessimism. Uh, I'm not even interested in that. Uh, I don't have time. It's not that important. Uh, and there is so much written under rubric of Afro-pessimism uh, that doesn't all agree that I'm not sure where to begin. Uh, we can talk about it if you want to, some of the limitations, but I want to in instead introduce an earlier expression of pessimism. That is the revolutionary pessimism of Pierre Naville. 
Um, if we think of, you know, pessimism as confronting the existing and ongoing catastrophe that most people are dealing with every day, not by turning to prefigurative politics uh, to sidestep uh, or attempt to leap over crises, then there's a way in which uh, there's a certain kind of politics of pessimism that makes perfect sense. And Naville, now who's Naville? Um, by the way, how many people have heard of Pierre Naville? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. I got four people. That's more than most. Usually I get zero. Um, and I'm so sad because some of his amazing writing has not been translated. You know, so some of these are my terrible French translations. Um, and, and, and he's written a lot. And, and I have some critiques of him, but let me just focus on this particular thing. So Naville was, of course, one of the founding members of the Paris Surrealist Group. Uh, the offspring of the bourgeoisie, his parents were um, bankers in Switzerland. Uh, you know, and like Cedric says, you, know, you never know where, the, where radicals come from. Uh, he went on to become a staunch opponent of European imperialism, uh, among the first surrealists to join the Communist Party in 1925, and he very quickly joined the Trotskyist uh, left opposition. Uh, when he was called to military service, for example, he distributed leaflets in the barracks uh, criticizing France's colonial war in Morocco. Um, and he also laughed at the flag, which got him in trouble. So he wasn't really a good soldier, but he was a good anti-imperialist, which matters more. Um, in 1928, he published a pamphlet titled The Revolution and Intellectuals that asked, quote, do the surrealists believe in the liberation of the spirit prior to the abolition of bourgeois conditions of material life? Or do they consider that a revolutionary spirit can be created only after the revolution has been accomplished? So for Naville, the answer was neither. The liberation of the spirit, which also translated um, as the mind, um, and the abolition of capitalism must be accomplished together. In other words, he favored a generative rather than a prefigurative temporality in the face of the existential, existential crisis posed by fascism. Now, Naville articulated his defense of pessimism in a 1927 essay that was published in the Surrealist Revolution um, titled Better and Worse, which was reprinted in the pamphlet uh, The Revolution and the Intellectuals. And pessimism was, for him, not a reason for, for despair, you know. It's not a reason for withdrawal, not a reason for melancholy or bitterness. Uh, what he called the richness of a genuine pessimism, which he traced to Hegel's philosophy and Marx's revolutionary method, requires action and must take political form. It offered a path to escape uh, what he calls the nothings and nobodies in the age of compromise. He wrote, of course, um, everything in us is for life. And if we do not define a doctrine or a practice, it is because our very inability to agree, meaning as a community, on a single aspect of pessimism is for life. So Naville's revolutionary pessimism was, in fact, a critique of optimism. And what do I mean by that? Specifically, the optimism of Stalinism, Stalin's assertions about the inevitable triumph of socialism in the USSR and the imminent fall of capitalism. It was also a critique of the shallow optimism of social democrats who believe that through parliamentary means, uh, they are capable of establishing the workers' welfare state as prefigurative of the socialist commonwealth. And he has other people he critiqued, like Herbert Spencer, you know, uh, which is easy to do. You know, Herbert Spencer was arch-racist sociologist. You know. He's British, though, right? I'm sorry. 
Um, but he's, he's, a problem. He's, he's the guy who coined the you know, survival of the fittest, um, which is a kind of attack on, on everything. In any case, his revolutionary pessimism was not fatalistic uh, or an obsession with decline of elites or nations or Western civilization. Rather, it was a call for collective revolutionary action by and on behalf of the oppressed classes. It was as Michael Lowy, Michael Lowy, by the way, is the one who hit me to Naville, who wrote this beautiful book, Morningstar, uh, which has a, a wonderful chapter on um, Naville. As Michael Lowy explained, uh, this was an interruption of a process of historical evolution leading to catastrophe. Now, the capacity of movements to interrupt historical processes leading to catastrophe is precisely the point of a generative temporal frame. Neither Naville uh, nor the person who actually was drawn to Neville, uh, Walter Benjamin, uh, Neville was the one that kind of hit Benjamin to the surrealist, um, believed the workers' movements or the world were necessarily doomed. That was the point. If they thought it was doomed, they wouldn't do anything. On the contrary, revolutionary pessimism accompanied uh, what Andre Breton called anticipatory optimism, the commitment to struggle in dark times and preparing to win. Um, and I have some examples of that. And I'm going to skip that, um, Amakar Cabral and others. But let me, no, let me just say this. I got, I got a couple more minutes. So Amakar Cabral is a, is a really good example of, of this idea of interrupting the historical processes. He insisted that colonialism interrupted the historical development of African peoples and the struggle for liberation. In turn, um, that once Africans interrupt colonialism, it will interrupt the catastrophe unleashed by colonial exploitation and extraction and subjugation around the world. For Cabral, decolonization depended on interrupting colonial history and returning to the source, restoring and transforming the indigenous social and cultural practices from that colonialism tried to destroy. Um, which leads me to the final point I want to make, which is about solidarity. So acts of solidarity are not acts of faith, uh, they're not political calculations, but principle. And this is hard to say nowadays because I, I get so much pushback in this age where um, the feeling, the sense that anti-blackness and that the world is kind of organized around anti-blackness or um, blackness and non-blackness. And that, um, so when you talk about solidarity, there's a sense that um, there's got to be some kind of... Um, Exchange some kind of reciprocity. So, for example, as I say, you know, solidarities are fragile. Um, they're temporary. They're always forged and sustained in struggle. Um, solidarity can produce eternal fracturing within groups, sharp disagreements, um, as Neville points out, and new alliances. And in this pessimistic moment, it, it isn't easy to convince people to commit to a principle of solidarity if they don't believe the other forces are equally committed or, uh, or are suspicious of those other forces. Um, and we see this particularly with, um, more recently, with black Palestine solidarity uh, in the US. Um, and that's what last thing I want to talk about, because this is um, the 71st anniversary of the Nakba's Nakba Day, which is a couple days ago. Um, and let me just explain a little bit about this moment, because you know what many of us have seen was a kind of resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity beginning in 2014, and fractures in that 
solidarity uh, around questions of anti-blackness. So these dramatic acts of, of solidarity <laughs> were soon followed by charges of Palestinian or Arab anti-black racism, uh, the tensions surrounding anti-blackness and to a lesser degree black uh, Islamophobia often generated productive discussions, forums, debates, self-critique, even new scholarship, uh, reminding us that you know, solidarity, whether it's black, Palestinian, or any solidarity, has to be understood as contingent uh, or contingent political project rather than some kind of natural, essential, transhistorical alliance, which begs the question, again, why presume that racial or national identity should be the basis for any kind of solidarity? Like, why do we assume that? We, we take it for granted. Um, we know that there's no uniform black or Palestinian sensibility, um, identity or community. I mean, we have Palestinians, right-wing Palestinians in Central America running for office uh, who definitely are not allies of some of the struggles that many of us are engaged in. Um, and black people signing all these laws putting, uh, putting us in prison. <laughs> I can name them um, a lot. So again, race, skin color, any of that stuff is not necessarily the basis of solidarity. Um, or for that matter, you know, there's differences of class, gender, sexuality, location, generation, ideological differences, etc. All these dynamically shape and fracture black and Palestinian identities, making solidarity within these communities difficult enough. Palestinian communities, you know, of course, um, have shown right-wing pro proclivities, particularly in El Salvador and Chile. Um, now, I've written elsewhere, Zionism and strident support for Israel has actually been the default position of most African Americans, especially among elites. There's no natural black American support for Palestine. It actually is the other way around. It's strong black traditions of support for Israel for reasons we could talk about. Pro-Zionist, anti-blackness, um, has never produced a united, uniform, unanimous, black anti-racist response, nor have the depredations of Israeli settler colonialism generated a similarly unified Palestinian response. So we should not be surprised to discover Palestinian anti-black racism or black anti-Arab um, and, and, uh, and Islamophobic responses. Um, reluctance to build alliances across these communities or what we typically see uh, the most common response is not any of those things, but indifference. Most people are indifferent. I have to say, the majority. I hate to be so pessimistic, but you know, that's why we're here. A commitment to other struggles based on international principles, however, doesn't require reciprocity. Solidarity, again, um, is built around not exchange, it's not a debt requiring payment. So I just want to just end by sort of gesturing at this question surrounding what public expressions of Palestinian solidarity recall and resignify. The question of international solidarity, actually I'm gonna skip that part. Um, so we've seen this in the US really erupt recently. There's a whole slew of things that happened. Some of you may be familiar. CNN fired Mark Lamont Hill over some comments he made. Uh, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute initially decided to rescind an award to Angela Davis uh, because of her Palestine work. Uh, Michelle Alexander wrote this great New York Times op-ed piece um, criticizing Israel uh, um, and also arguing that Dr. King, had he been alive, would support 
uh, Palestinian justice. Um, so there's a lot of things that end up centering black intellectuals, black elites, uh, black thought around the question of Palestine. And, and I'm not going to re-narrate these events, but what I want to do is I want to push back uh, away from the argument that the Ferguson-Gaza convergence was sort of the beginnings of this solidarity. Um, but rather, I want to make the argument that we have to go back to post-1967. Um, that post-1967, that moment from 67 to the mid-70s, was when you had, in some respects, some of the richest, most dynamic um, relationship of solidarity, not around identity, not around race, but around a shared politics of liberation. Um, this is when the convergence of black urban rebellions and the Arab-Israeli war birthed the first significant wave of black Palestinian solidarity and signaled the, the demise of was a U.S. black Jewish alliance, um, at least a certain uh, sense of it. And this was the moment when Palestine came to mean global anti-imperialism. Uh, and we forget that sometimes because, again, the Ferguson-Gaza convergence sort of led to a kind of eruption um, that overshadowed this earlier history. So it's no accident, for example, that in this period, U.S. groups like the Black Panthers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Committee of Black Americans for the Truth about the Middle East, came to see the Arab-Israeli war as a war of dispossession and Israel as a full-blown imperialist power and a proxy for U.S. imperialism. This was a radical break from the past, contrary to the myth that black people and Palestinians were natural allies. Uh, again, much of the world, the black world, identified with Zionism through the Old Testament book of Exodus. In the U.S. and the Caribbean, most black leaders in the black press embraced the founding of Israel because they recognized European Jews as an oppressed and homeless people determined to build a nation of their own. So when we talk about this moment of 67 to the mid-70s as a high point of black Palestine solidarity, we have to acknowledge that it was the black left, okay, this is a point I want to drive home, the black left, a political minority, that extended solidarity to the Palestinian left based on radical anti-imperialist agenda. So it wasn't all black people and Palestinians. It was the Palestinian left and the black left that actually found common ground. In fact, most black liberals and conservatives were actually ramping up their support for Israel. On 28 June 1970, A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, civil rights leaders, published a full-page ad in New York Times calling on the U.S. to provide Israel with more jet fighter planes. This is from Rustin, the great pacifist. <laughs> Remember that. Um, a prime example of Negro leaders doing the work of promoting foreign policy interests of another country that Elon uh, Omar talks about. This is also when Arafat, Arafat addresses the UN General Assembly, his famous guns and olive branch speech, and made it clear that Zionism is a kind of colonial movement allied with imperialism. It is intent on territorial expansion, and the occupation of lands of neighboring countries. And the only clear solution was the establishment of a secular democratic state in all mandatory Palestine, where Arabs and Jews would have equal rights. That was the position before Oslo. And yet even the concept of a single democratic state falls short of capturing the political imagination of the black and Palestinian left in this moment, elements of which oppose both nationalist and statist solutions for free Palestine. Black Panther Party leader Huey P. Newton argued during a press conference in 1970 
national self-determination was impossible under U.S. empire. National sovereignty in real democracy is a chimera in a world where the United States can overthrow regimes it doesn't like and prop up those it does. And it had a good track record of that, by the way. Our very survival, Newton insisted, depended not on creating new states, but on transforming society. And he writes, or he stated, in his press conference, he says, you know, this transformation can only take place by wiping out United States imperialism and establishing a new earth, a new society, and a new world. So politically and strategically, the correct action to take is not separation, but world revolution in order to wipe out imperialism, and then people will be free to decide their destiny. So the post-1967 radical insurgencies were more than nationalist struggles for modern nation-state as a path to decolonization, but as Adam Getachew uh, suggests, these ought to be understood as world-making rather than nation-building. So imagine that, world-making rather than nation-building. Behind these black expressions of solidarity with Palestine lay a vision of world-making rather than the politics of analogy or politics of identity, and that uh, the eruption of history, of the post-67 history, it's into present struggles to end occupation, dispossession, exploitation, and violence in Palestine and the U.S. has actually been a catalyst for imagining revolution as opposed to plotting coalition. Um, so let me just, in, by way of conclusion, I just want to end. Uh, I'm skipping um, Angela Davis because I have no more time. Um, here we go. Just the last little conclusion, two minutes. Um, we return full circle back to the blues, back to the international, uh, back to forms of anti-capitalist resistance that extend beyond an industrial proletariat, back to visions of freedom, the long anti-day capitalism, and a, a willingness to confront the present with revolutionary pessimism, even if mixed with anticipatory optimism, which is funny for me to say, because everyone knows me as like Mr. Optimism. Like freedom dreams, you know, optimism, dream, dream, dream. Like why would you even use the word, the P word? You know, but I'm learning, because I'm an old person. <laughs> the pessimism is actually in the blues. But what's also in the blues is joy. And this is, this is what I mean when I talk about if you could make the international into the blues, it would be pessimism and joy, right? And it would be a text you keep writing on and writing on and writing on. Um, and I want to remind us that, and I want to end by quoting uh, my friend and comrade, the writer Aurora Levins Morales, who insists on the audacity of joy as our anchor in the midst of catastrophe. And she writes, last words, we could spin forever from emergency to emergency, shouting no to each new crime, but that would be steering uh, by chasing clouds. If we are to live audaciously, we need to step into the calm eye of the storm and steer by the stars to imagine in rich detail the biggest, most delicious, satisfying, inclusive future that we can, a great flowering of human potential and well-being uh, project our hearts and minds into that future. But then she warns us that we need to always, quote, be rooted in the reality of here and now, all of it. This is how we turn trauma into light. Trauma is not the opposite of joy. It is the husk around its seed. The more we face into the world, the more we let ourselves know how other people live. 
the more we learn about not only their pain and rage, but also their love and resilience, their defiance and hope. And it's from that full spectrum of knowing that we fill in the details and colors of the world we want. There is joy that, are, that rises from being with what's true, even when that truth includes the terrible. Thank you. Okay, now we could have a conversation. Yes. Sorry. Thank you so much, Robin. We have half an hour for a conversation. Uh, who would like to get us started with a question? Mm. Yes. Thank you for your beyond brilliant lectures. Oh, that means that I should have taped that. I mean, that, it's like that. I should, I should declare that I'm, a, I'm from China, work for the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, especially your explanation about Karl and uh, his ideas in the internationals. Imagine that Karl Marx came here and sitting us with you. And uh, what would he tell, tell, tell us? For example, if he named one or two countries who did, did the best job or make his idea into reality, what would he say? Thank you. <laughs> Man, that's a hard question. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's a really good question because, it, of course, it leads me to more questions. And that is, um, is this the 19th century Karl Marx or 20th century Karl Marx? You know, in other words, um, Marx, who I, I, to me, is one of the most brilliant thinkers. You know, despite my, my critique, which I learned from Cedric, um, and a great historian in many ways, despite his own sort of quote-unquote blind spots, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but he was a product of the 19th, he was very much a 19th century figure. And there's a big debate about whether or not, uh, I mean, there's one side of the debate that says, well, he's 19th century, you've got to understand him, because in some ways he's a very much a product of 19th century political economy. He's not necessarily radically breaking with Ricardo, you know, uh, or with Adam Smith in many ways. Uh, Ricardo in particular, so he, he really appreciated um, uh, 19th century political economy, and that was where he was operating from. Um, but then he lives through the last part of his life, was one of the most tumultuous periods of global history. I mean, he dies two years before the Berlin Conference, one year really before the beginning of it. Um, and, you know, Imperialism is already making its, its way. If you think about you know, what happens in the next 20 years by the turn of the 20th century, I mean, even just in the history of China, for example, you know, um, let alone global history, he has a lot to have to confront. So my question is, is this a Marx who knows about what happened in World War I, um, about the collapse of the Second International? Uh, is this a Marx that knows about uh, the Korean War as really the first significant hot war in this new global order? Is this a, a, a Marx that recognized and, and saw what um, the global anti-war movement did in the 1960s and 70s, or the guerrilla wars, uh, the Bolivarian revolutions? I mean, what, what Marx is this? Is this, the, is this the Marx that saw the hope 
and possibility of decolonization only to, uh, to see the rise of various undemocratic regimes under the, um, uh, the sort of a pressure of a kind of neoliberal order. Which Marx? Is this the Marx who, who, who dreamed and believed in free trade? Because, I mean, look, the, the, all those cats, those Hegelians, they were like free traders. Or is this a different one? So I guess my, again, this is to, in order to avoid your question, um, <laughs> is I have to sit down. We have to all sit down with them and say, catch them up. And so like this is like this. And then, of course, in catching him up, he's going to hear so many different positions and perspectives that it's going to be a real battle. Um, now, in answer to the particular question, so what, what would Marx, looking around, does he see any, uh, anything that looked like what he imagined socialism to be? And I think that my guess is that he's going to say no. That the idea of the, the dictatorship of the proletariat just has never really happened. Um, will he see possibility, though? And I think he would be actually really enthusiastic and excited about what's possible. I mean, Marx also, again, it's kind of critical, but unlike some of the surrealists, Marx, as a 19th century figure, he, he, as much as he hated capitalism, he loved capitalism. He thought capitalism was amazing, both in terms of the way it developed productive forces, technological advances. And I think the first thing he'd do is he'd be walking around and like before our meeting, he'd go to the mall, he'd buy like electronic devices, he'd, he'd be like obsessed with all this stuff, like all these gadgets, and we could communicate just like that. And I think that kind of excitement is, is part of what he's gonna see, right, as the potential tools of a new socialism. But then I think he's smart enough to stop himself and say, well, wait a second, let's talk about, let's, let me go back to my earlier writings by alienation, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I, th- I just think a lot w- would happen. I know it's a long answer to your question, but I-, I think he'd be disappointed but excited at the same time. Okay. okay. I'll-, I'll be shorter for the next question. No, no, this is fine. Um, yes, over there. I'll collect two questions at a time, actually. Yes. I should write them down. Oh. Is that on? Try it. Try now. Yeah, it works. Hi, thanks. Yeah. Uh, I really like your lecture. Um, and the idea you talked about, about solidarity beyond the boundaries of race or nationality. But I think at this world that we are witnessing, we see uh, the rise of populism and all this kind of, like, myself being deprived so that I start to hate everyone else and this inability to transcend fear and uh, kind of um, feelings of strangeness with people <coughs> that you don't really have connection with. So I'm wondering, what do you think about how can we build up, build a kind of bridge beyond all these difficulties? Yes. Thank you. Um, All the way in the back, please. (coughs) Hi. Oh, we lost you. Did it go off? Need some batteries. No. No. <coughs> Another one's coming. Hi. Yeah. Um, so you said that um, that solidarity kind of emerges from a shared politics of liberation, 
And I just wonder whether you could uh, sort of speak a bit more about what you mean by that and what, what role do you think that conflict and enmity play in the sort of production of solidarity? To what extent is it about a shared enemy? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it comes from somewhere else, and maybe you could give some detail about that. Okay, great. Thank you. So Related. Okay, let me take the last question first. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that solidarity ipso facto comes out of the politics of liberation. In the particular instance of the black Palestine solidarity of six, post-67, that's the point I was trying to make. Mm. Because, in fact, one can make the argument that... Um, uh, the post-2014 um, uh, solidarity, which, which is beautiful. I mean, this is not at all critique of that. In fact, I'm saying it's, it's actually quite stunning and um, uh, ingenuine and authentic. But some of that also comes from a, a shared enmity with state violence, specifically police violence. And so when you think about like the way in which um, conversations were being t- were taking place between Ferguson organizers uh, and, and Palestinian Americans, as well as those in Gaza. They were talking about solidarity built around how to defend oneself uh, against tear, tear gas. Um, uh, the deadly exchange that JVP, uh, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, promoted is about uh, exposing the way that uh, police uh, in the U.S. are trained uh, in Israel and how this exchange takes place in terms of dealing with uh, popular uprising. Um, and I agree with you. I think that in many cases, there is a, that, that um, solidarity can be built and often is built around uh, enmity, uh, conflict, and often racism. And I give you, I mean, there's many, many examples of that. And that's why I don't, I don't want to, that's why I began by saying we always take it for granted when we say solidarity, solidarity for what? The labor movement in, in, in California in the 19th century, according to this wonderful book by the late Alexander Saxton called The Indispensable Enemy, um, you know, details how this is a movement built around anti Chinese opposition, anti Chinese violence. Um, there's all kinds of, and it just kind of speaks, begins to speak to the question of populism. Uh, it's probably more often than not, more common than not, that the kinds of solidarities, that, and they're all kind of ephemeral, um, are built around a common enemy, um, xenophobia. You know, we think of solidarity against xenophobia, but xenophobia can produce a kind of solidarity. Uh, we see this, I certainly see in the United States, you see it in South Africa right now in terms of other Africans, you know, and um, immigration policies and attacks on those who are perceived to be, and not just perceived to be, but produced as um, invaders, stealers of jobs, um, economic burdens, um, and that sort of thing. Um, so yes, I think that's actually true. The question, but this, this leaves another question though, uh, and that is, what is community? And I, I didn't say this as clearly as I probably should have, but um, I'm very skeptical of the idea of community as, um, as, as shared interests. 
that there's a set of shared interests or historical relationships and that we have this community and we just have to kind of restore it. You know, That's a very problematic position. Um, Alyosha Goldstein has this book called Poverty in Common, brilliant book, uh, where he critiques that. He's not the first one, but he critiques it very beautifully. Uh, and I think that when we think about community, if community is made, it's often made uh, not from some kind of pre-existing um, sense of common understanding, recognition, but made in struggle and always having to be remade every day. And so the idea of generative temporality uh, requires, or the expectation is, that no community is natural, that communities are actually these, these, um, uh, these processes that are, are formed uh, in the struggle, uh, that are dealing with the catastrophe, they're dealing with the moment, and not necessarily communities that um, are pretending like it's not there, and that those communities could break up as, as quickly as they come to, together. And that's why being skeptical of community as a kind of a natural thing is to push up against a, a, a national and sort of international discourse that assumes ready-made communities, like around race, you know, or around gender, and, you know, or even around class, you know, let alone any other kind of, around nation. And these are kind of often imagined communities that are produced for the purposes of sometimes opposition, sometimes self-defense, but often sometimes in ways that elide, elide, um, or suppress um, desires for freedom or for something, you know. And so we've always got to be real skeptical about that. I, you know, I get the, the identity question all the time, you know, and so I'm always trying to find, remember, um, Paul Gilroy was very good about talking about a politics of identification as opposed to a politics of identity. The identification is, in some ways, you know, um, it's not fixed. It's always in motion. Uh, it's always being made and remade. And oftentimes, the grounding is political. So people ask me, who are you? What are you? You know? I say, I'm a socialist still. Small s. Yeah, I'm a socialist. Anarchist, I guess. I'm an anarchist as of, as of this morning, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so, so that's, I know it's a long answer, but in some ways, we've got to be skeptical of community. We've got to be skeptical of solidarity as a kind of natural thing and recognize in, within the context of generative temporality that these things are constantly made and have to be remade in relationship uh, to the conditions and lives and memories and limitations that we all have. Now, on this question of um, uh, populism uh, and this feeling of fear, I just want to say that you know all those feelings, those those things are cultivated. You know, and that's that's the thing. I mean, again, just like community is not a natural sort of thing that just pops up. I would also make the argument that much of the um, uh, the populism and xenophobia. Uh, some of that stuff is mobilized uh, for the purposes, much like fascism. You know, fa- I mean, the success of fascism uh, wasn't um, simply the ability to, to manipulate the state, you know, or to use the threat of or actual existing imperialism to mobilize support. 
but it was basically getting people to believe that they have a solidarity around the common threat of an enemy. And that produces two things. It produces this false solidarity. Not to say that the other one's real. It's all false, I guess. I don't know. I had thought about that. But it produces a kind of solidarity that's, that is based on the negation of the other. Uh, and, of course, it's a very dangerous thing because you never know when you become that. You know? um, so how do you deal with that in these times? That's why I think there is a, a, almost an obsession with the notion of community. Community as a way to sort of beat back against um, the xenophobia, the alienation. Um, and I think there's something powerful in that idea, as long as we don't fall back into the trap of thinking that, again, uh, we have natural communities that we just have to sort of, and when we disagree, that somehow that's not, that our community, we're not being good, good community members. Um, but all I know is that the situation that we're in now, which is so dangerous, is not a situation where you can be isolated. You know, there's, there's no space for that. And, and we have technology and tools that generate isolation. They, they produce isolation. They produce alienation. That's why Mark's coming back. I wonder what he would think about certain forms of social media, which produce community in some ways, but also for other people. Um, you know, it, it produces levels of violence that, I would even argue are unprecedented, you know. So I know we have a couple more questions. Can I interject with a tiny question about the world? Um, Because the world seems to be the horizon of the revolutionary thinking Mm -hmm. that you're asking for. Um, how How do you imagine it? Is it the human race? Um... In other words, what is the basis, the basic subject of this world revolutionary imagination? I'm tagging on um, behind the backs of the last two questions mm-hmm. as well. Do you take the human race or humanity as the subject of revolutionary politics on a world scale now? Nah. <laughs> Only because it's too small right now. We're, we're dealing with, we're dealing with a, a catastrophe... Uh, where I think there's now finally recognition that we're fighting um, not just for human survival, but for survival of the very planet. And, um, and, to, and, and to rethink, um, again, the line in the international, uh, the international working class shall be the human race. Uh, that kind of, that kind of you know, recognition of humanity, humanism, the... Um, androcentric nature of, of revolutionary politics, that needs to change. And I think I'm trying to change along with it. Um, and, and I think that we could learn so much from uh, like indigenous movements, for example, uh, from the n- new efforts to think about decolonization not as uh, human liberation, but planetary. Uh, and I think also about two people who are, whose work I really admire who have been thinking about this in terms of the commons. In uh, the commons meaning uh, not just uh, access to resources, but really commoning as a, as a social practice, and that is Sil- Sylvia Federici uh, and Peter Leinbaugh, who I just wrote about recently. Uh, and I think that they 
together along with others have been thinking for a long time about what's the horizon of, of transformation, of revolutionary transformation, and that is the restoration of the commons in a way that does not uh, step on um, the particular social and cultural relations that pe certain people have to land. Because there's a way that, that restoration of the commons could actually erase all that in terms of indigeneity and indigenous relations around, to land. Um, and that the commons sometimes gets translated, and they don't do this, they're actually pushing against that, uh, into uh, a way of holding property in common. But once you've decided that the earth is property, you've already lost. Mm -hmm. That's not the commons at all. So how do you get away from property relationships, uh, ownership, even the question of sovereignty, which is tricky because you know we people are fighting for sovereignty all the time, but then sovereignty also has its own limitations. Um, so that's a kind of way to answer the question. Um, although you know, I would love to hear your answer because you're ten times smarter than me on this stuff. I mean, really. Um, I will take another question okay. instead. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, you at the back have been waiting, and are there any? I know, he's been waiting for a while. Where? Sorry, I didn't see yeah. you. Yes. Okay. Both of you. I'll take all of them. Actually, yes, let's hear from everybody because we have five minutes and uh, perhaps Robin could improvise a collective well, we, answer. But well, we, we can go a little bit longer, right? Uh, Is that okay? We're going to be thrown out. We will probably get thrown out, but we can resist. Yes. Okay. Yes. Just really quickly then, thank you very much, um, comrade. Robin, uh, for your <laughs> brilliant tour de force and broad generative kind of socialist traditions that exist. I mean, Eugene Poitier himself, who wrote the, you know, the Internationale, mm -hmm. was a pr prudenist, for example. Right, uh, right, right. One example there. But your talk made me think about lots of things about Pierre Neville translating C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins. Yes. It made me think of uh, how the English working class supported uh, the North during the American Civil War right at this moment and how that might have helped. That's kind of a link between your kind of rise of the blues, isn't it? The kind of post-emancipation thing, possible actually through working class solidarity. But I guess uh, my, my just query was just about, you know, Marx himself, defending Marx a little bit, because within that first international, all these different strands of socialism, yeah? Right. There. Uh, Prudenists, Blomquists, Bakuninists, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Mazzinists, yeah. But you know, Marx himself was the one who actually fought for uh, the International Working Men's Association to recognise right. a woman on there, Harriet right. Law, on the thing. And he also, you know, so he himself fought. Actually, he said, you know, every any social revolution's uh, impossible without the feminine ferment, as he put it at the time. You know, so that sense of the 19th century Marx actually, and that idea of kind of solidarity, his, his work around his writings on the American Civil War, for example, his anti-racism, right. and also his, you know, his, his opposition to the sexism, which was dominant in the working class movement at the time. Yeah, and can you play us the Internationale with the Afrikaans thing at some point as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, I hope we could do that. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good question. Okay, I got that. And you here, please. <coughs> um, hi. Um, oh, sorry, I pointed at him in front. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, you can, everybody's going to have their turn. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you, Professor Robin. Um, it's really a nice analysis. You bring the optimism and pessimism into this great consideration of the, I would say, the left-wing movement or the uh, whole international. 
And my question is some concern with the international left movement. Like mm -hmm. when we are talking about the leftists, there's always a concept of the degeneration. And how will you link the degeneration into your concept or today's topic, the pessimism and optimism? Thank you. Okay. Yes, and last two questions then, you and you. <coughs> Hi. Um, oh, did you have your hand too? Okay, yes. Okay. Um, I, was, I really like the way you um, kind of built the idea of internationality blues through Clyde Woods, Baraka, and Cedric Robinson. I was wondering if it would kind of, you could take that idea on a kind of walk and end up in Jamaica. Yes. And you could kind of have Absolutely. George Beckford as the Clyde Woods equivalent. Uh, Linton Kwesi Johnson, although he's in Britain and Jamaica as the Baraka equivalent, and then Stuart Hall as the mm -hmm. as the Cedric Robinson equivalent, and they kind of have an international dub because you kind of yeah. Kind of, so, absolutely, I'm 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 100% behind that. That that would be that would be hot. Yeah, because that was a that was, that was a kind of mass improvisation. Right. In, 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 a, in a revolutionary situation. Absolutely. Let me, let me get okay, there. last two, because we do want to hear some response here and all the way back <coughs> there. Yes. Yes, thanks for that delivery on that amazing international blues and revolutionary pessimism. My notion is that you mentioned earlier the, the question of liberation in bleak times. In your experience, do you believe that the Western um, agenda and the lack of commitment for global solidarity. In your experience, when do you think the journey will ever begin, if ever? <laughs> so let me just make sure I understand. So the question is, when will you give back the microphone? Because I want to make sure I understand the question. Um, so when the journey of sort of genuine international solidarity, you mean, will begin? In terms of the global crisis at present, with names dropping Trump, right, Blair, right, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. Got it. And the last comment or question, yes. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for the talk, but also your book, uh, Hammer and Ho, one of the most important books uh, of my life. Um, it's an incredible book. Um, my question is about revolutionary pessimist politics and whether it can be a mass majoritarian force mm. because the people you mention, Pierre Naville, for example, they're generally minorities, often repressed, um, the persecuted, you mentioned Benjamin as well, right. um, whereas the revolutionary optimists, I suppose, the social democrats, the communist parties, mm. gender to be the mass majoritarian force that um, took millions of people and around the world into their orbit. Um, so can it ever be a mass majoritarian force? And I, just because I'm the last question, I'll end on an uh, optimistic note. Um, I suppose, or optimism of the will, I suppose. Um, the, in the, the commune, when Marx talks about the commune, as in that's his definition of the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, direct democracy, seizure of power by working people. In fact, well, I've a number of people have argued this, that our social composition of societies, the workforce now is more like the commune than mm. it is uh, the 1960s or 1970s, in that we have a mass precarious workforce moving between jobs. Um, we don't have mass industry like, um, like the 1960s. And in fact, Marx on the commune is far more relevant, I suppose, to our, um, to our social, uh, sociological workforce now than 
ever before. I don't know. Right. Thank you. Those are really good questions. Okay, so let me let me just go in order and see if I can remember everything. So, on the first question, I to, I totally agree, um, especially where that Marx really was influenced by all these different traditions. Um, part of part of what we're also inheriting is Engels' famous essay on socialism, utopian, scientific, where even Engels begins to hedge a little bit by acknowledging other uh, forms. Um, of socialism, and yes, Marx did have those debates, but was very much influenced with Blanqui, Proudhon, all these people who were like allies, but sometimes um, antagonistic. And on, in terms of where so much, uh, so much of the left was dealing with um, uh, the place of women, both in in democracy, in so, in, in, within the social realm, yes. Um, one could argue, and this has been argued before, uh, in a book called Marxism and the Oppression of Women by Lise Vogel, uh, where she argues that Marx was far more advanced even than Engels on this question of gender and women, um, and that Engels, though he wrote more in terms of directly you know, on the origins of family, private property, and the state, uh, that Marx actually had these, so, so Lee Spogel makes a really strong case. Now, and I don't dispute that. I agree with that. Uh, what, what Cedric was trying to argue, though, was he says that some of the medieval philosophers uh, actually had an even more feminist approach to women's liberation, women's freedom, which, of course, you know, he read all that stuff, and it's kind of shocking, the kind of stuff that he found. Um, and part of his critique wasn't that Marx and Engels weren't for the emancipation of women. He, he agreed with that. He even said that they began by recognizing that that gender relation is the first class relation, you know, relation of exploitation, but that ultimately it's exactly what you say, that the International Working Men's Association would incorporate women but as part of the proletariat as opposed to an independent force. And that's where, and we could, and people could disagree with that, but that's that's Cedric's argument that even then it's hard to recognize even then uh, women's liberation as not just an independent force, but maybe the vanguard, you know, as opposed to again the idea that this universal subject of proletariat. So I, but I agree with everything on degeneration and left. Um, I don't know what to say, except that, yes, degeneration is, um, is, has been an argument. Um, this is actually tied in some ways to, to part of your question. And, and um, I think, his, I think it, to, to the presumption that degeneration is kind of part of what, what happens, um, I think sometimes falls out of history. Um, and this speaks to your question about the, the fact that uh, the radical left in the modern world uh, has just never really exercised um, power in numbers and institutional sustainability in a way because you're talking about movements that uh, are not just degenerating internally uh, but also always under siege. And social democracy, in some ways, 
uh, is succeeds in part because, with some exceptions, uh, it's not under siege, you know. Um, and how the question of degeneration plays in uh, a political order in which the state, especially in the 20th century, is the main arbiter of power, the main space of power. Um, you know, states were not so powerful. We were just talking about this like in the 18th century. Uh, even though the nation state might be emerging, the, the actual bureaucracy of the state, the, the state's ability, the, the, power to, the, the ability to use the state to actually exercise power, to, to, to um, uh, project coercion, you know, even to create a kind of culture uh, of hegemony, that's a 20th century phenomenon, I think. You know? And so if I could actually jump back to your, to your question, and I'm going to come back to the others. Um, I don't know where. I, 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 I've never really believed that the most um, radical and visionary movements have ever come close to exercising anything like a majority. Um, in fact, even if you think of the civil rights movement as largely a somewhat liberal movement, although I argue that aspects of it were not liberal at all, but quite radical, that SNCC's economic policies in Mississippi in the early 60s uh, were quite radical, that the civil rights movement was not a mass movement. We think of it as a mass movement because people show up, they, you got enough pictures of the March in Washington to make you believe it, but for the most part, you're talking about small numbers of people. The, in, in, in some ways, the small numbers in Mississippi uh, in 1960, not 64, because that was an infusion of, of 1,000 people, but who, who persisted in Mississippi from about 1960 to about 68 or 69, no, I'm sorry, mid-70s, was about as small as the circle around the surrealist group, you know, in, in, this, in relationship. Um, those committed anti-war activists uh, did not reflect the thousands who showed up on the mall in Washington or showed up in Paris. The, the 68 rebellions, you know, which is moments of insurgency, um, you know, are, 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 are ephemeral, they're flashes. Uh, but for the most part, the kinds of claims and arguments that, that people like the pessimists uh, are trying to make will always keep them as like the left opposition, you know, whether or not they're Trotskyists or not, they'll always be that. Um, the, the anarchists as well. Uh, as far as Marx and the Commune, I, I agree with you. The one thing I would add to that, though, is that um, it's true that we, we're witnessing precarity on a global scale, uh, and people are actually living in circumstances in which the Commune can be the model. I agree with that. What's interesting, though, is that and this is an issue in the United States, in terms of manufacturing, we have the largest labor force, in, you know, manufacturing labor force in world history right now, but they're all sweatshop. They're, you know, you're talking about China and Vietnam, you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the maquiladoras, you're talking about sweatshop labor in Central America. Uh, there's all this fast fashion, all this manufacturing taking place under circumstances of semi-slave labor. And the question is, given the, uh, the, the capacity of capital to fly, 
And given the nationalism that's still pervading, the question is whether or not we can really, aside from like anti-sweatshop labor, you know, how do, how do people challenge those kinds of power? Um, how do they take over factories? How do they create the commune, especially given that the agricultural capital, um, tourism, ecotourism, um, you know, forms of mechan- the Green Revolution have displaced millions of people. You know, ecological disaster displaced millions of people who, who end up in these um, uh, uh, free trade zones, uh, in these maquilladoras, uh, in cities, begging for work. And one of the things, this, to, to, to sort of to close on this, but to also reinforce your point, I was having a conversation recently with someone about the, the next Great Depression that's coming. Because it's coming, it's already here for some people. But one of the differences between what we're about to see and what we've seen in the past is that we're not going to see mass unemployment. Mm-mm. Precarity, the, the way capital is operating now, is that what we're going to see is people working more and more jobs in precarious labor. We're not going to see mass unemployment. We're going to see people, um, we're going to see uh, wages, conditions just decline, decline, decline. Uh, and that's why in the United States, under Trump, we, we have labor reports of new jobs being created when we know that the precarity of the labor is getting more precarious by the day. So what does it mean to live in a future in which you need two or three jobs to survive with no benefits, no living wage, nothing? That's the form of slave labor. That's, that's worse in some ways, I know. I know, stop, stop. Yes, uh, thank you. Worse, I think, than... Um, different, but worse in some respects than just like mass unemployment, people receiving unemployment insurance. I mean, so I think the future is precisely that. So the question is, how do you turn that into something? Um, the commune, I think, is a great idea. I think what we're also seeing um, I, is more and more um, at least efforts across the globe to take over um, dying forms of industry, uh, self-employment, uh, collective self-employment, um, and, and worker-owned you know, uh, industries. And if we could do that more worker-owned without thinking about it as property, but think differently, you know, that's because worker-owned could actually mean like a new capitalist enterprise. Uh, and, and worker-owned in the age of a share economy where Uber and Lyft drivers are basically making slave wages as well. I mean, it's, it's a really difficult moment we're in, but I really appreciate it. Everything you're saying. So now two more. Um, dub In music. Two minutes. Okay, two minutes. Mm-hmm. Dub music, yes. And in fact, the one person I didn't even mention was Sherrod uh, Chari, who wrote this beautiful essay about the blues um, in South Africa. Uh, but I think that's absolutely right about Jamaica. And I should mention Jamaica only because those are my people. My mother's Jamaican. Uh, so we have all that, all that music and all that culture. And not just that, we could talk... Uh, about, um, uh, well, lots of different examples. Um, and then, uh, what about today? <laughs> In two minutes. Okay, one minute. Um, my answer to that would be actually tied to the gentleman's answer, to my answer to, to about sort of where we are right now. Um, there is, it's very difficult. International solidarity is, is both possible it's emerging around certain issues. Um, 
the, the globalization of capital means that movements are in many, many ways global. Um, how do you do that in an age of rising xenophobia, nationalism? Uh, and that, to me, is, is a challenge. Um, you know, and I don't have an answer to that. All I know is the last word I'm going to say about this is one of my high horses is that um, Trump is not a radical difference from Obama in terms of the policies that are happening in the United States. And so one of the things that Trump did for us is created a kind of an, uh, a clear-cut enemy, whereas people are defending Obama's policies. Not me, by the way. I, I'm on record for opposing him. He doesn't even speak to me. Um, but, but in some ways, the consistency of the, that, that neoliberalism since 1970 has been really consistent, uh, and that Trump is in some ways different in many ways, but in many ways a continuation of the same old thing. So we have a lot of work to do um, to wake up, you know, let alone uh, you know, use all this new technology we have available to us to make linkages. So that's the irony. We have more information than ever than any other generation. We have more ways to link than ever, but there's also more pressure uh, and more of a pressure to be able to make those linkages turn into something, uh, and more precarity to the point where we don't even have a base you know, um, to be able to support people who, who are able to, like, go on strike, you know? The idea of the strike fund, for example, um, that's dwindling. I can't say about Britain, but I know the trade union movement has, is, is almost bought up. Okay, I know. I, I'm done. On All that right. uh, optimistic note, pessimist, thank you very much, Robin, for a fantastic lecture.